0: Chicago braces for its first post-pandemic assessment of property taxes. And I'll talk with Crane's Brandon Dupre about a unionization push at biotech firm Tempest.
1: It's emerged as a ripe industry and field um, where workers are you know, looking for a voice and a helping hand. And this is another example of a union sort of fulfilling those needs here.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, February 14th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporter Brandon Dupre here to talk about what is driving the unionization push at biotech player Tempest. Brandon, welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you.
1: Of course. Thanks Thanks for having me.
0: So talk to me about Tempest. I feel like we've heard so much from from labor uh, over the last year or so, but from like the lab space, I don't feel like that's a place we're hearing a lot. So so talk to me about what's going on there.
1: Well, last week, uh, white lab coat workers at the precision medicine startup Tempest. They filed for a union petition. And for those who don't know, Tempest is the it's sort of a, it's an AI enabled precision medicine player. And it was launched by a billionaire Groupon co-founder, Eric Lefkowski. It's, it's raised, you know, I think reports of over a billion dollars in funding. It's a big player in the space. And, and what's interesting is that it's a sort of new field at the intersection of healthcare and technology. There's been, you know, a lot made in the last few years of the healthcare industry, you know, post-COVID, you know, there's been burnout, overworking, staffing issues, and that's really led to a sort of reckoning in the industry of workers sort of wanting more, say, in the workplace, um, say, over contracts. And so there's been a big union push within the healthcare sector. You know, you've you've seen news reports of nurses on strikes um, here at, at Northwestern. Our healthcare reporter Catherine Davis wrote about the residents there winning a union election. You really just you look over your shoulder in the healthcare industry, and, and it seems like a new union is sprouting up, or there's new organized um, activity. This tempest offers, like I said, an, a sort of interesting space in that it's technology, but it also Um, really the people who are doing a lot of the lab work, they are healthcare workers. They are white lab coat workers And like the complaints amongst those who form unions in the healthcare industry, you hear the same sort of issues over pay, over oversight, over wanting just more control over the workplace. That's what the workers at Tempest have have told me.
0: So in the unionization push, what specifically are uh, Tempest workers looking for?
1: So um, the workers I spoke with, they brought up pay, which healthcare uh, workers will cite that as, you know, among one of the top priorities, high turnover rate, which, you know, can be associated with with pay, and it can also be associated with overwork, understaffing. Um, and then one of the big things that was told to me was greater control over the workspace. And what they really wanted to emphasize was safety. The labs, the union is trying to seek to represent, you know, roughly 400 lab workers at uh, the Chicago lab location, which is in river, river North. And what they emphasize is they really don't have much say in sort of the safety protocol, the safety flow within their own workspace. And it's become a point of contention. Uh, I had you know, one of the workers told me that for example, they've smelt and seen, you know, uh, strange odors, um, in places. In a, in a lab like that, you know, that's always concerning. Also, they brought up the point that, you know, the, the current building that they work out of, um, it's at 600 West Chicago. And, you know, the building was built in the early 1900s. And, and some have raised concerns that, A, maybe the structural bones of this building isn't meant to fill a modern lab, you know, the rigors of a modern lab. Despite you know the company has outfitted it and you know the, it's it's followed accreditation, there's a bunch of certifications, there's regulatory state and regulatory you know that they must abide by to have an, a lab in these places. The workers are saying you know I think there's a deeper structural problem here. And one of the workers told me you know should this union go through, they're really going to push for potentially a change in venue of where this company could even be you know allowed to you know house this space.
0: And if this unionization effort is successful, who would represent the workers?
1: So uh, it would be the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, and they already have a big presence in Chicago, and in the Chicagoland area. They represent um, thousands of auto mechanics, auto workers, and then also um, workers at O'Hare, at Midway Airport. They've also recently uh, represented healthcare workers. They won an election at Ohio State. So they're actually in an interesting space where you can see that these unions, I mean, their name is Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, but, you know, they're pushing into the healthcare sector. It's emerged as a ripe industry and field um, where workers are, you know, looking for a voice and a helping hand. And this is another example of a union sort of fulfilling those needs here. I, I spoke to the union reps who were sort of organizing this effort here. And, you know, what they told me is that their push For unionization, Tempest won't just begin and end with the Chicago labs. The company also has labs in North Carolina, also one outside of Atlanta and Georgia, and they're already underway in efforts to, you know, potentially organize there. They told me that it's not going to end with um, the labs here in Chicago.
0: And if I were recalling uh, Tempest correctly, weren't there originally, weren't there plans to take it public at some point? What what has become of those?
1: Yeah, there was reports, I think we reported on it, we covered it at the end of 2021, and the reports that Eric may potentially take them public as early as 2022, but, you know, since then, it's, it's been quiet, we haven't heard anything, and th- they recently secured an um, approval for um, an FDA product, so you can assume, and this is what the workers told me, that you can assume there's going to be a lot of growth. Um, within the the labs as they sort of work on this product. Um, I think that's a good thing for the company, obviously, as they get FDA approval. But the company, you know, it's also now going to have to contend with an organizing workforce and potentially throughout the entirety of the company. You know, once one starts it, you can imagine this is just going to snowball to um, the other labs.
0: Yeah, certainly. And about how many workers are at Tempest now?
1: Well, we don't exactly know it's a, it's a private company but um the data research firm pitchbook estimates it at you know a little over 2000 and that's you know all together across the country
0: everybody yeah
1: really, yeah in chicago at least for the lab workers it's it's around 400 that are looking to join the union and then the the chicago labs is its largest lab the other ones are are um, considerably smaller
0: and do you have a sense of of what kind of timeline might be attached to this
1: as of right now not yet clear of when they will actually have the election. So once once they filed for um, the petition for election, they will have to communicate, the NLRB, communicate with the employer and the employees on setting up a date to hold the election. That's not yet been announced, but as the union sort of gears up towards the election, that's kind of when you really start seeing more union efforts within the company, outside of it, you know, they're going to be canvassing. Um, and this really where it starts building up the tension between the employer and the employee's I'm sure you can expect some sort of messaging out from um, Tempest and the company. You know, this is really where you, you see the tension between the two dynamics here at play.
0: Indeed. Well, we will uh, put a pin in it for now, but I'm sure plenty more to talk about as it unfolds. Thanks so much, Brandon.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up, the owner of Old Orchard Mall taps a local developer for a 400-unit apartment project. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. A struggling downtown Chicago real estate market is making it difficult for officials to determine property values in the first such assessment since the end of the pandemic. Bloomberg reported that last year, less than five large office buildings in the city changed hands. And those deals sold at losses ranging from 50 to 90 percent, according to the Building Owners and Managers Association of Chicago. Bloomberg further noted that the small number of deals and deep discounts are thwarting price discovery and spurring Cook County Assessor Fritz Kegi to consider leaving out the most distressed office tower sales in calculations. Of buildings, Kegi said in an interview, quote, if there's some kind of duress or serious time pressure where they couldn't be properly shopped, That's one of those things that might make you take that value with a grain of salt, just as you would any other asset that trades under distress conditions. He also noted that such transactions that violate appraisal rules are, quote, not representative of where the market actually is. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the value of properties downtown is central in determining how the tax burden is shared between residents and businesses. If Kage excludes distressed sales from his analysis, other building and residential owners could face higher taxes. Bloomberg further noted in reporting that Chicago's challenges underscore the commercial property distress that's hitting lenders around the world who've been stung by losses on souring property loans, particularly tied to office properties. And a few more sales in recent months have increased the risk that more lenders and owners will need to confront valuations that have changed dramatically since interest rates started rising in 2022. According to Cushman & Wakefield, Chicago's downtown vacancy rates stood at 23.5% at the end of last year, far from pre-COVID-19 levels of 13.1% at the end of 2019. Bloomberg noted that Kage said his office in 2021 considered vacancies of 20 percent or more and that he expects there will be more vacancy considerations following, quote, the developments that Chicago has experienced, just like peers across the country. According to the Cook County Assessor's website, total assessed property value increased 31% to $47 billion in 2021 from 2018, with a bulk of that coming from non-residential properties. Property valuations are a crucial part of budgeting for Chicago and other cities, which for more than a decade have relied on tax levies from an expanding commercial real estate sector to pay for schools and public safety. Additionally, in Chicago, property taxes are the largest source of revenue for its severely underfunded pensions. Bloomberg further noted that Kagee said his team will talk with brokers, owners, and tenants seeking leases, as well as sifting through data on vacancies, rents, cost ratios, and sale prices. Assessments, which here are conducted every three years, are expected to be released later this year. Howard Brown Health CEO David Ernesto Munar is stepping down at the end of the month after 10 years of leading the LGBTQ focused healthcare provider. During his tenure, Munar oversaw the organization as it grew from serving just 8,000 patients at three locations in 2014 to more than 38,000 patients across 10 locations today, according to a statement from Howard Brown. Crane's Katherine Davis reported that under Munar's leadership, Howard Brown has grown into a $200 million healthcare organization offering comprehensive and affirming care to Chicagoans. He's also led the company as it dealt with labor disputes, a National Labor Relations Board investigation, and significant financial challenges. The organization's board of directors has launched a search for its next CEO, according to the statement. Davis reported that news of Munar's departure follows the appointment of three Howard Brown executives last week, including chief financial officer, chief human resources officer, and a medical director. Howard Brown, founded in 1974, employs about 600 people. Aside from its clinics, the health system also operates the Broadway Youth Center and Brown Elephant chain of thrift stores. In fiscal year 2023, Howard Brown reported a net deficit of $9.6 million on operating revenues of more than $191.9 million, a spokesperson told Cranes on February 2nd. Outfox Hospitality, the new parent company of Foxtrot Market and Dom's Kitchen & Market, has named a new CEO. Crane's Ali Marati reported that Ron Twyman will take the wheel of the company on March 11th and beyond day-to-day operations. He will also oversee both Dom's and Foxtrot's growth in Chicago and in new markets. Twyman will take over from Liz Williams, who was named CEO of Foxtrot last April. Marathi reported that Foxtrot co-founder Mike Lavitola and Dom's co-founders Bob Mariano and Jay Owen will continue in advisor and board roles, according to a press release announcing the news. Twyman's resume includes 27 years in leadership roles at Whole Foods. Marati also noted that Outfox was formed through an all-stock merger late last year. Foxtrot and Dom's were both founded in Chicago, and Foxtrot has more than 30 upscale convenience stores in Chicago, the Washington, D.C. area, Dallas, and Austin. Dom's opened its first location in 2021 in the Lincoln Park neighborhood, and it was the brainchild of grocery store veterans including Owen and Mariano, who also founded the namesake grocery chain. Crane's Rachel Herzog reported that the owner of the Westfield Old Orchard Shopping Mall has tapped local developer Focus to build about 400 luxury apartments on the site of a vacant department store, a step forward in one of suburban Chicago's biggest mall revitalization efforts. Herzog reported that Paris-based Unibail Rodamco Westfield's endeavor to turn the Skokie Retail Center into an around-the-clock destination where people can live, dine, shop, and seek out entertainment is part of a broader trend among developers looking to reinvigorate suburban malls, and one that Focus has been part of before. The Chicago developer recently started the second phase of a plan to build more than 600 apartments at Aurora's Fox Valley Mall and a 311-unit apartment complex that Focus built at Hawthorne Mall in Vernon Hills opened in June. Herzog noted that Focus plans to break ground on the apartments at Old Orchard, which will involve demolishing a shuttered Bloomingdale store at the northwest corner of the property in 2025 and open the apartments to residents in early 2027. The developer said it will go through the village's planned developmental approval process this year, also saying that Focus and URW are working on securing outside capital to help finance the project. Herzog further noted in reporting that mall owners' efforts to breathe new life into suburban shopping malls by adding housing stock coincides with strong demand for apartments in the Chicago area. Net monthly rent at apartment buildings in suburban Chicago was up 5.4 percent year-over-year in the fourth quarter of 2023, according to the Chicago Office of Appraisal and Consulting Firm, Integra Realty Resources.